Welcome Jubilee Fellowship Church. My name is Evan Martin, and I'm the campus pastor at Lakewood Campus. And so I just want to say hello to all of our campuses that are tuning in and the people who are watching online via live stream at jfc.org. Welcome. We're glad that you're here, however you're hearing the message. Uh, everywhere I go and bump into people from JFC, members or people who attend any of our campuses, uh, they tend to ask me, okay, so give me an update on Lakewood. How is Lakewood doing? And so I wanted to take a little bit of time to let you guys know what we're doing in Lakewood. Uh, several months ago now, you guys gave, some of you guys served to open up the fourth campus of JFC. And we opened up in May, so we've been going for a while now. And um, we are pretty full, actually. We, we bought a church that's a, it's a, a church building on two acres at Hampton and Wadsworth. And it's a red brick building with a steeple. Uh, it's really cool. And uh, we have, we have uh, close to 300 people there every Sunday. Uh, we're thinking about adding a service. So that may be news to some of you guys that are listening at Lakewood. Um, so uh, the votes are being cast. Should we add a Saturday night service or should we add a second Sunday morning service? So I'm taking input for that now. Uh, we also are a polling place. And so most of you guys went and cast your vote uh, near your home. Well, Lakewood Campus for Jubilee Fellowship Church was a polling place for two precincts. And so what we decided to do was have uh, people from that campus come and volunteer and give away coffee and just bless the people that were coming to cast their vote. But also the six judges that had to be there all day that Tuesday from six 6 a.m. until 10 p.m. And so uh, we had volunteers there all day. Uh, we, we gave away coffee um, like people were addicted to it. And then we had people coming uh, from that campus dropping off food like they were starving people stuck inside the building. And so it was a really fun full day. And, uh, you know, when you're hosting something like that, especially as a church, you can't really be vocal about what it is that we believe and what we stand for. Um, but when you serve somebody with the heart of Christ, they, if they don't know who Jesus is, you pique their interest. Like, why are you doing this? You, you don't have to do this. And so those six judges had all been judges before. One of them had been a judge at that specific building before it became JFC. And so at the end of the night, I had had private conversations with all six of those judges and all six of them just thanked, thanked us so much for what we did and how we blessed them and how we served them. We kept every couple of hours, kept running up. Can we get you another cappuccino? Can we get you this? Can we give you a break and have you go get some food? Um, and so uh, all six of them asked about when we had service times and mentioned to me privately that they would want to show up uh, in the near future. So praise God for what's happening. We're expanding his kingdom. Um, all across our city. And so thank you for being a part of that. But I know that people were asking, so I just wanted to give an update on that uh, very fruitful plant uh, over there in Lakewood. So um, we have named 
this series, White Elephant. Now, all of us probably have had experience with some awkward gift-giving ceremony with extended family members that has some sort of connection to the white elephant gift. And maybe we've gone home uh, a little bit disappointed with the gift that we got out of that circle exchange. And so we as the teaching team, we got together and we actually uh, dug up the history of white elephant. And when we discovered the history, we thought, you know what? Let's name this December series white elephant. And so let me read you the history. You'll find it in your notes and you can follow along. It's written out uh, completely so you can follow me with this. And then I'll let you know why, in fact, uh, we decided to do that. The history of the white elephant In Thailand and some other Asian countries, white elephants were historically regarded as holy beings. People believed that they would bring fertility, prosperity, and power. The death of such magnificent creatures spelled disaster. As such, the owners of such magnificent beings were required to pamper and serve the elephant with special foods, elaborate housing, and arrange for public access to those who may want to come worship it. Kings were usually the only ones who could afford the extensive upkeep of the beans. Royal white elephants were some of the original pampered pets. Anything these elephants could have ever wanted or needed were provided in excess. The origin of the elephant gifts began when ancient kings became extremely displeased by an assistant and would make a gift of a white elephant to the assistant. At first, the gift appears as an extreme honor. However, as time goes by, its novelty wears off. The financial burden was sure to slowly cripple people of less than superior monetary means. The white elephant has come to symbolize a prized possession whose maintenance cost exceeds its worth. See, I didn't know that until recently. That really sheds a light on the awkward experiences that I've had with my extended relatives now. Um, <laughs> And, but we got together and talked this over and we thought, you know why it's appropriate to name this series that is because there are a lot of Christians that view their faith, their Christianity as a burden that comes at an exhaustive cost because we don't see it as a relationship. We see it as a religion. We see it as something that was given to us, unto us a son is born. But then we work it out in our daily lives and we see it as a list of do's and a list of don'ts and it becomes a burden. Does that make sense? All right, well, let's pray and then we'll dive into the details of this. So, Holy Spirit, we welcome you here at all campuses, even into the homes of those who watch online. Holy Spirit, we invite you here, but we don't invite you here just as a special guest. We invite you here as the rightful ruler. Have your way. God, we step aside our intentions, our motives, the reasons why we came. God, we push all that aside and we say, open up our minds, open up our hearts. 
breathe over us. Let your word come alive. Let it not just be ink on paper. Let it be living. Let it be active. Let it be food for our soul. God, we give you this time. We give a timeless being a portion of our limited time. Come and bring heaven to earth in this place. God, we give you praise in Jesus' name. Amen. So, how did Christianity get to this point? How did it get to the point where we, some of us, or a majority of us, or the fact that some of us go in and out of, of viewing Christianity as a religion and as a burden, how did it get to that point? Did the disciples of Jesus see it as that? When they walked with him for three years, did they see it after he left, after he ascended into heaven? Did they start then to write down charts and lists and start telling the people who would eventually follow them and the, and the churches that they eventually planted? Did they start making lists of, okay, this is what you need to do and this is what you don't need to do? Is that how it happened? And then as they passed that down, did the church fathers and the church leaders and the church elders, and then eventually down into the evangelical Christianity that we have here in this day, have we allowed and accepted that? I think you guys would all shake your heads and say, no, I don't think the disciples saw their newfound faith as a burden because they so freely shared it, right? And so, if we see Christianity as a white elephant, I don't think we'd be so free to share it, right? And so, may I ask you this, is that the reason why we don't share it? So, the decline in denominational attendance, we see mainline denominations receding in attendance and in church plants. Why is that? Is it because the message there for so long, decade after decade, has been burdensome and full of religious jargon? And then also this, at the same time, we've seen, especially in America, the pace of evangelism just drop off the chart, right? Rarely, rarely a Christian will just out of free will, share their faith. Sure, we can get people fired up and we can take them on outreach and we can gather together in men's groups and we can create special circumstances where then we rely on the one special person who we think has ap apologetics all lined out and they can walk somebody through the acceptance of our faith. But I think sometimes we're a little bit hesitant to share our faith because we view it sometimes as limiting it's something that is, it's our religion. And why should I invite my next door neighbor to church if all I'm going to do is obligate him to something that he must attend once a week and then make him feel bad if he does the wrong thing or make him feel bad if he doesn't do the right thing? Does that make, does that make sense? See, point, point number one on your notes is this. Belief it determines behavior. And so if we believe that our religion is a burden, then that tweaks and changes how we respond to it. But let's go all the way back to the birth of Christianity, to the place at which Jesus himself hands that faith 
over to humans and see how they respond. One of the guys that was there walking and talking with Jesus for three and a half years was Peter. And Peter had a very interesting thing to write in his second epistle. So I'm going to, I'm going to uh, read from second Peter chapter one, verse three. Second Peter is one of those books in the Bible. If you brought your Bibles with you, it's very hard to find. So what, what you should do is just turn to Revelation. Revelation is the last book in the Bible. And then page backwards and you'll get to Jude and then third John, second John, first John, and then you'll get to second Peter. But if you go the other way, it'll take you a long time and it's kind of embarrassing. Uh, so, and then if you didn't bring your Bible, but you have your phone or an iPad or something like that, what you're going to do is you're going to type in the number two and then the letters P E T E R, <laughs> and that'll get you to the same place. So, um, but once you get to there, uh, read with me in whatever translation you have. This is the New Living Translation. By his divine power, God has given us everything we need for living a godly life. We have received all of this by coming to know him. So once again, by his divine power, God has given us everything we need for living a godly life. We have received all of this by coming to know him. So here's a guy who got it firsthand. I like to realize that when our view of religion gets a little bit distorted, to go back to the firsthand account. And so Peter, years later, after Jesus has already ascended, now it's his job to pastor the Christians that are coming to faith and to lead the churches uh, that are being birthed in the area. And he, as part of, as part of that responsibility, he felt obligated, I'm going to write a letter to these people and explain to them what our faith is all about. And in so doing, he pens those words that his divine power has given us everything we need for living a godly life. So how many years has it taken us to mess this whole thing up? That here's a guy who heard it firsthand and said, wait, 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 wait. This is not supposed to be full of effort. This is supposed to be pretty easy because he's already given us everything that we need for living a godly life. One of the commentators that I love to pull from is John Peter Lang. He was alive in the 1800s and he was a German man. And I have a set of his commentaries and I pulled out uh, what he had to say about this. And this is, this is what he said. He says it this way. God richly furnishes you with whatever is necessary for your spiritual life furnishes you with whatever is necessary. Now it's Christmas season. And so a lot of our homes are starting to have some things that we don't typically have the other 11 months out of the year, right? We have wreaths and we have lights and we have little knickknacks that we pull out of boxes and maybe go to the store and buy brand new for this, for this year. And so guys, if your wife is anything like mine, you'll recognize that all of a sudden you'll turn the corner and, and something will be cleaned and put in order and then something will be up that wasn't there before. And a lot of care and a lot of attention and a lot of time is being taken to get that one little thing in the exact right place so that if we have people over to our house, she will have joy in presenting her house to those people, right? But what John Peter Lang tells us in interpreting that verse is that God's a lot like 
our spouse, that he takes just as much time, if not more, to take those little things that we need and those little things that make life just a little bit extra special so that we can smile and share life together. And he puts them in the exact right place. That's what Peter's writing here. He says his divine power is giving us everything that we need for living a godly life. But do we believe that? Because if we believe that, then our belief determines our behavior. And if we believe that, then we don't fall into the category of the, the falling rates of evangelism. Because if we believe that God's already given us everything that we need and we understand that this religion is actually not a religion, it's actually a relationship, then all of a sudden, sharing what I have becomes just that much more easy, right? Christianity, it's not a white elephant gift from God. So point number two, everything we need. Everything we need. Everything it means everything, all things together, anything that you could think of that we could possibly need for living a godly life. Peter says his divine power has already given that to us, right? What I like to do uh, when I read a verse like that, that's a good verse and we could put it kind of on a note card and put a magnet to the fridge and start to memorize that and go, yeah, he's given us everything that we need. And it becomes a scripture memory verse, which is great. I encourage that. But what I like to do is I like to go, okay, who wrote this? Okay, it was Peter. He was a disciple of Christ. What sorts of things would he have needed? Because he was a real guy, just like you're sitting in a chair, just like I'm standing up here, real person, breathing oxygen, having the needs and desires just like us, just in a different time. And so if we remember what we know about the Bible already, what were some of the things that he needed? So I quickly listed off just in your notes there. Peter needed instruction. He needed grace for sure. He needed forgiveness multiple times. He needed restoration. Belief, I put that there because he needed somebody to believe in him. And then I put, he needed a second chance over and over and over again. He's easily one of the favorite disciples because of the blunders that he made. Because of how passionate he was, he ended up in so many of those stories, whether by his words or his actions. So it's Peter that writes those words, that he's given us everything we need. So think about it when you, when you read that, about what Peter needed, and then that'll help you to define everything. He needed grace, he needed forgiveness, he needed restoration, and he needed somebody to believe in him. So, what I want you to do right now in your notes is I want you to make two columns, and I'm gonna list out four things in each column. And I'm gonna go through this rather quickly, just so that you get them written down or in your head. And then I'll go back through and explain what I mean. So in the left-hand column, I want you to write this. He fell asleep while praying. That's point number one. Point number two, he cut off an ear. Point number three, he denied Christ. 
And point number four, he went back to fishing. You'll recognize that if, you, if you've read the Bible uh, any number of times and heard the stories, you'll recognize that those were the things that Peter did leading up to uh, the death and resurrection of Christ. And then point number four happened after the resurrection. And so now on the right-hand side of that column, I want you to write these four things. Number one, spiritually undisciplined. Number two, passionately defensive of our faith. Number three, unable to proclaim it publicly. And number four, decide to settle. And so if you didn't get those written down, I'm sure I'll mention them a couple more times. But what I want you to understand here is that Peter is very much so just like us. Like I said, he was a real human. And sometimes when we read the Bible, we characterize those guys and we put them up on a pedestal and then we almost make them to be something that they weren't. They were real humans. And so leading up to Jesus being betrayed, Jesus takes the disciples into Gethsemane and he says, hey, pray with me for a while. And he, he goes on just ahead of them, but he comes back and the disciples were sleeping. And so here's Peter. He falls asleep while praying. He was spiritually undisciplined at a point. But then number two, Judas comes into the garden with the gang of soldiers and tries to arrest Jesus. And who pulls out the sword and cuts off the ear of the servant of the high priest? It was Peter right? Peter's like, you're not taking Jesus. Whoosh, ear gone on the ground, guy bleeding, screaming, right? And so here's a guy who was just sleeping while he was supposed to be praying. But now he's, like I said, number two, passionately defensive of the faith. And so Jesus, if you didn't know that story, ended up picking up that ear. And in the moment, where they then continued to arrest him and eventually crucify him. He just happened to heal somebody's ear that was laying on the grass. No big deal. Number three, he denied Christ. Jesus pulled his disciples together and he said, he said, tonight you will all turn away from me. And it was Peter who said, no, Lord, not me. All these others, they might, but not me. And so Jesus took a step closer to Peter and said, actually, Peter, you're going to deny me three times. And in fact, he did. And so he denied Jesus and correlating on the right-hand side, unable to proclaim it publicly. Just like us in some cir circumstances, we find ourselves where we recognize sometimes we can be spiritually undisciplined and then the very next day or the very next moment, we can be passionately defensive of our faith to an error, <laughs> possibly offending somebody, hopefully not cutting off their ear, but maybe in a dialogue where that person wished that they didn't have an ear <laughs> to listen. And so we do that. And then the very next day, we can be in a place where we can't publicly proclaim or admit he was standing around a fire and they said to him, 
you were one who was with him, Jesus of Nazareth. No, 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 not I. I wasn't there. That's not me. Good thing there wasn't a Facebook page back then, right? Somebody double checking on their phone. Uh, actually, Simon called Peter. Yeah. No, so he moved on. And then again, he denied. And then again, he denied. And so how many times do we find ourselves in a place where one day we don't have enough energy or effort to pray and to press in spiritually. And then the next day we're like, no, 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 you're getting it wrong. And especially when we start talking about the sphere of politics or whatever it is that we're passionate about, we find ourselves really passionately defending our faith only to the next day not being able to publicly proclaim it. And then point number four, Peter went back to fishing and on the right-hand side, I would say that sometimes we too decide to settle. So let me tell you a little story. If you do have your Bible, you can turn to the Gospel of John, and it's the last chapter, chapter 21. And chapter 21, most scholars believe that it was an addition uh, after after John had written his gospel and then maybe many years later or a certain uh, time had passed, he decided, no, you know what? I need to include uh, this story. Maybe he remembered it. Maybe somebody asked him about it. And so now our translations of the Bible have this story in it. And let me tell you what happened in this story. Jesus had been betrayed. He had been crucified. And then he had risen. But let's put ourselves in the shoes of Peter and his friends. We've, some of us, been professional fishermen. Whatever we were, we've given up our profession and for three and a half years have followed this man named Jesus who we thought was going to be king. At first, we really thought he was going to be the king of the Jewish nation. He th we thought we were going to overthrow the Romans and he was going to in install himself on a throne in Jerusalem and reign as an earthly king. So if you think that with all of your heart, it's beneficial to follow that guy and maybe even so closely that you would be rewarded with some sort of position. Well, the disciples at some point believed that. And then as they stayed on longer and longer, Throughout those three years, they realized, boy, this is a different kingdom than what I thought. And it was being confirmed with signs and miracles. And they saw people were getting healed everywhere they went. And they saw miracles where food would just appear and multiply out of just a small amount. People were fed. People were brought back to life. This was something that if that was your job, you wouldn't miss a day of work, right? You wouldn't want to miss and find out about what happened the day that you weren't there. But we have the benefit of the Bible. We have the benefit of knowing these stories, of hearing these stories, of being familiar with these characters and knowing what happened to them, how they became these great mighty men that actually changed the world. But that's not who they were at that point. They were just men who were living on faith, living in the moment, and then all of a sudden their king was crucified. And when they find out that he was risen, it was some women that came to them and said, we saw him today. And they didn't believe them at first until they were 
locked in a room because they were afraid that it was going to be them who was next. People were looking for them. And then Jesus appears. And he appeared to them. You remember Thomas wasn't there. Thomas was like, well, I'm only going to believe it when I see it. And then so the next time they're all together and Thomas is there, Jesus shows up again. Well, John in his gospel shows us and tells us of another time that Jesus showed up after he was risen, but before he had ascended back into heaven. And so let me take you on that journey. How would you feel if you had given up your profession, you had followed this roller coaster, you were loving life, and now you find yourself at a point where you're actually really confused. You don't know when Jesus is going to show up next. And you don't know if he's ever going to show up again. And so they don't tell us how long it was from the time that Jesus showed up at the home and convinced Thomas to this point. But all we know was that there was a group, seven of the 12 disciples, were basically sitting on the curb, not knowing what to make of this faith and this kingdom talk and this life that Jesus had lived and what were they going to do now, but they didn't have anything to do. And so you could imagine the silence in that moment. And then Peter says this, I'm going to go fishing. In the Greek, it says, I go fishing, meaning I don't care what you guys are doing. I'm going, right? And so the other six guys, they're like, well, we'll go. And so they were sitting there lonely, depressed, confused, probably not talking a whole lot. If you know anybody that um, has been in a situation like that, I would uh, put the word maybe grumpy into that mix. Um, not the happiest bunch of guys, right? And so they were like, all right, let's do it. I think it was Peter kind of giving in. Like, man, I could wait around, but I don't know what to do. But you know what I used to know how to do? I used to know how to fish. And so they go out, they get into a boat, and it says they're in this boat all night long. Former professional fishermen, and they can't catch a thing. You know what? I think there's some of us that are at that point in our faith. That we've seen it happen, we've been a part of it happening and now because of whatever has happened recently, we find ourselves sitting on the curb and we have said maybe even yesterday or today, we've said, you know what? I'm just going to go back to what I know. Even if it's not good for me, even if it's not what I'm supposed to do, and even if it's not what I know God has called me to. Peter was a real man, just like we're real. And he got in that boat. Maybe some of you guys are at that decision where you're saying, okay, I'm just going to get in the boat. Maybe some of you are already in that boat and you're trying to fish and all night long you're not catching anything. And maybe the lack of fish is starting to make us think, wow, maybe I'm not doing what I'm supposed to be doing. And so whatever it is, they find themselves in that boat all night long, no fish, and now the sun starts to come up. It's a new day. They're about 100 yards away from the shore. 
and then they see a man on the shore. And this guy calls out to the boat, and this is what he says. Children, have you any fish? You know what a bunch of grown men who don't have any fish don't want to be called in that moment? Kids, you know? I bet they were like, get on this boat and we'll show you who's a child. <laughs> Can you imagine a bunch of JFC pastors, hungry, tired, upset with each other? And then somebody wants to start a fight. I don't know how they exactly responded to that. But what's written down in the Bible is that they simply responded respectfully and said, we have none. And so this stranger on the shore, he said this, well, cast your net on the right side of the boat. Now, those of us who have the Bible, immediately we can remember, wait a minute, there's a story about this. This has happened before. Who is this guy on the shore? But these disciples were not in the place where they had the advantage of the scriptures already being written. They were the ones who were going to write the scriptures. They were the ones who were going to change the world. Maybe some of you are just sitting in a boat ready to be a world changer, but you don't feel like a world changer. Maybe you're right at that moment where God is about to infuse power into you and take you to the next level in your family or in your occupation or in your dream or in your vision. And you're going to leave a legacy, but right now you just feel like you don't have any fish. And so in that moment, whether just diligently or respectfully, they cast the net onto the right side of their boat. And you know what happened? Full of fish, 153 fish, basically jump into this net. It should have broken the net. And so these seven guys are pulling as hard as they can, hoping that this net doesn't break. It might have been the only one that they had left, or it might have been one that they had borrowed. They weren't professional fishermen anymore. But now they've got this catch. And in, the minute, in this moment, John looks at Peter and he says, I think that man standing on shore is the Lord. Peter didn't need anybody to tell him twice. You know what he did? He put his outer cloak on himself and he jumped out of that boat into the lake and he swam a hundred yards just to get into the presence of Jesus. Wow. I don't know if any of you have ever swam a hundred yards. That's a lot longer than what you think though. I'm sure Peter was so exhausted when he got on shore and maybe a little bit embarrassed. I don't know if there was like some sort of wet hug or embrace that happened. Peter just is a guy that responded passionately out of emotion when he knew that it was Jesus. And so his friends try hard to pull this boat closer to shore with the net dragging behind it. And, and Peter's there. You know what Jesus had prepared? Breakfast. And so he had a charcoal fire going. He had fish already roasting on that fire. He had bread warming by that fire. And then Jesus said, come and add some of the fish that you have to this meal. To this meal. And so Peter climbs back onto the boat and by himself, it says he grabs this net, 153 fish, and he drags it on shore and adds to whatever meal was being prepared miraculously. 
this is what I want to say is that we just walked ourselves through what had happened with Peter. He was spiritually undisciplined. He fell asleep while he was praying and then he was passionately defensive of his faith. He chopped off somebody's ear in the moment. And then he denied Christ. He couldn't proclaim it publicly. And then even after the resurrection, even after he maybe could have had a glimpse of what was about to happen, he chose to settle. And he went back to fishing. And in that moment, in that moment, Jesus met him, showed up, and didn't just show up. He prepared breakfast for a bunch of guys that were hungry and tired, and now one of them stinky and wet, right? Jesus wants that for us. He wants that for us. If you're in a place where you've said, I can't do it, I can't work at this religion anymore, then I want to tell you it's not religion. It's not a white elephant gift. It's not something that's meant to be a burden. It's actually something that's meant to be a relationship. And in that relationship, his divine power has given us everything we need for living a godly life. So now does that verse in Second Peter make a little bit more sense? Because it was when he was tired and grumpy and hungry that Jesus already had a fire going with breakfast. I think Jesus wants to invite a couple of us who would respond to breakfast. I think he wants to wake some of us up early and open up the Bible and have him just come alive out of those pages, that it wouldn't just be black and white, that it wouldn't just be ink on paper, but it would be living, it would be active, it would be food for our soul. It truly is everything we need. So point number three in your notes, how do we get it? Okay, Evan, I understand, I think. But my tendency when I walk out of here is going to be to try harder and to be better. And I'm going to try to conform my life to what I think it means to be a Christian. Or if I make a mistake, I'm going to try to reform my life and make up for what I did. But I want to say it's not about conforming or reforming. It's about transforming. It's about letting his divine power seep into us so that we can be transformed. So how do we get it? Well, that verse in 2 Peter ends with, we have received all this by coming to know him. So the more we know him, the more we can receive from him. So then, how do we get to know him? I would say this, walk with him, worship with him, 
I found an older song. Sometimes I'll just do this. I'll just get stuck on a song and put it on repeat. And so there's a Jesus culture song called Dance With Me. Dance with me, O lover of my soul. And I'll just let it repeat and repeat and repeat until I get it. Spend time worshiping him. Read about him. Get books about Jesus. Get books about the Bible. Pick up the Bible again. Maybe it's been a while. Go buy a new version of the, of the Bible and read it like you've never read it before. Read it one time like these were real people. They come alive to you. Write to him. Start a journal and just write him a letter. If you're more artistically minded, draw to him or paint to him. You know, every once in a while, my kids will run up to me and just hand me a piece of paper that they've spent time drawing or painting. And my three and a half year old, Ethan, sometimes he'll hand me a piece of paper and it won't necessarily be a work of art. It'll be scribbles. As we walk out this Christmas season, I want to challenge you to just scribble our way to a closer relationship with the Lord. Because that gift, that piece of paper that my kid gives to me is so valuable. As a father, I accept that and place immense value on it even if I couldn't tell you what it was supposed to be. If it's just scribbles. And now they've learned to put the words to daddy, love Noah or Kaylee or Ethan. That's all that Jesus wants from us is a thought and a little bit of effort. And I think if we just scribbled our way through December, we would be so full of joy and so full of passion and so renewed in our relationship with the Lord. Some of you, not all of you for sure, dance with him. Maybe not me. You guys wouldn't want to see that. But maybe even some of you guys who can't dance, maybe you shut the door, you turn on the music, and you just... Peter jumped out of a boat at dawn. You know how cold that water was? That tells me that he was willing to do something, whatever it took to get closer to Jesus. And so as we enter into worship on the back end of this, maybe it's raising your hand, maybe it's kneeling down, maybe it's getting out of your chair and finding some space where you actually just say, okay, I'm not going to get distracted by anybody else in the room, but I'm really, really going to worship God. I'm going to worship God like I'm jumping out of the boat because I think that man on shore might just be Jesus. And if it is him, if there's even a slight chance that Jesus has showed up to come and make me breakfast then I'm going to make my way there. And if I have to dance my way there, if I have to swim my way there, 
If I have to write my way there, then take me to Jesus. Take me to Jesus. I don't want religion. I want relationship. Does that make sense? Jump out of the boat. If you found yourself in a place where it's become easy to settle and not believe everything that Jesus has spoken to you, then jump out of the boat. Do whatever it takes to get to Jesus. I'm going to have all the worship teams at each campus start to make their way up. And I'm going to close by just talking to you guys a little bit about the practice of communion. Communion is... It's an ancient practice. It tethers us to the history of the Christian narrative. And when we do it, it's a physical way where we can actually say, I'm going to have a meal with Jesus because this practice was birthed out of that last supper. So if you have your Bibles and want to turn to it, you don't have to. But if you go to 1 Corinthians chapter 11, starting in verse 23, it says this, the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, also, he took the cup after supper saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. When we take a little piece of bread and we dip it into the cup, of wine or of juice. We take two common elements and we stand in a position that believes that those two elements become holy. Because what I mean by that is that we get to participate in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. And so why would we believe that something common could become holy? Well, we believe that because that is the message of Christ. That is the message of Christmas. And that is the message of our religion turning into a relationship. See, because... When Jesus came to earth, he came with every intention to make us holy. So he takes us, common man, common woman. He shares relationship with us. He breathes the Holy Spirit into us and he makes us holy. 
It's not about us striving in this season to become something that is projected upon us. It's us saying, I'm going to scribble my way to a refreshed relationship with Jesus. Do you believe that? Jesus, we love you, we praise you, we give you glory, we give you honor. Holy Spirit, have your way in us, in our hearts, in our lives, in everything that we do and say. God, we want you to rule. We want you to reign. For the person who would want to settle, Jesus, come, we ask, and just meet them at breakfast. Whether it's tomorrow morning at breakfast, whether it's on a jog, whether it's on a drive into work at some point this week. God, we just ask that you would fill their room, fill their car with life and abundance. God, I pray that as people dig into your word this week, God, I pray that it wouldn't just be ink on paper. I pray that it would be living and active. I pray that it would be food for their soul. And God, in the busyness of this season, God, I pray that you would press the pause button over our life and just meet us at the shore and share time with us, God. We love you and we commit our lives once again to you. In Jesus' name, amen.